Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2148 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 16 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. And today we continue our series on the good news according to John the Apostle. Last week Jesus explained that he was the bread that was delivered from heaven and he is a symbolism of that spiritual food that brings eternal life. And today our scripture is John chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 58 through 71. It's on page 1658 in your pew Bible. So if you'll follow along as I read, I am including two verses from last week to give us some context this morning. So follow along as I start with verse 58. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna but will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of the disciples said, This is hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that the disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From from this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who... So one of the twelves later betrayed him. Now this part, by this time in Jesus' ministry, his disciples might have numbered in the tens of thousands to various degrees of devotion. At least hundreds of them were serious enough to consider him their rabbi from that synagogue in Capernaum. And they would have actually supported a movement to make him king of Israel. But Jesus knew that their kind of devotion was fickle, and it sprouts quickly and then withers away all of a sudden in the heat. And it reminds me of the story of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, where that plant, that giant plant, grew up within one day and shaded Jonah from that hot sun. And then the next day, God caused a worm to eat that plant, and it wilted. And Jonah cursed that he might die because of that heat. 
We are fickle at times, aren't we? And that fickle multitude of disciples described Jesus' teaching as, in the Greek, as skeleros, which means dry or hard or rough. Can you imagine? I'll cut this a bit bagel in case you can't see it from the back. But can you imagine leaving it out on the counter for a week or two and then trying to eat it with nothing on it? This was what reminded me of that hard teaching, a dried old bagel that's been sitting out, and you try to eat it with no water, nothing to drink, or nothing to put on it. And figuratively, the term describes something or someone who is unyielding, like that dried bagel would be if you tried to chew on it. And it would be received with discomfort. And this is the type of news that this multitude said that Jesus' teaching were. It was a distressing news, a challenging concept. They said, it's too hard for us to believe. But what Jesus was teaching wasn't difficult to understand. It was difficult for them to accept. Jesus perceived the multitude's difficulty and asked them if the teaching had literally trapped them in. Had it put some discomfort around them of what he was teaching? And the Greek term here is scandalizo, and it's where we get our word scandalous from. The original meaning, most literal meaning, is to spring back and forth or to slam closed. It's like a single spring-loaded animal trap. And I was all out of bear traps this morning, so I said, Paulo, do we got a bear trap around here at all? So, well, I don't think we do, and I don't think it would be a good idea if you bought a bear trap in the church. So I settled for our mouse trap, and it's like that little mouse. He wants that food, but he doesn't really want to work for that food at all. He doesn't understand what the implications are. That if he goes after that food and that's his desire, that it can be a trap. And at least this is what the multitude who had just been fed and their bellies were full the day before, they wanted something more. The symbolic use of the word was rare outside of the Jewish or Christian writings, but not altogether absent. One Greek playwright describes an unjust accuser dragging innocent men into the court and then laying traps for them with their questions. And that's what Jesus was making them think about what he was teaching. The symbolic use of the word is rare, but Paul frequently used this term to portray Jesus as an intellectual or moral trap. And anyone who opposes God thinks that they are righteous because they've taken God's righteousness and assumed it themselves as they are righteous instead of God being that holy and righteous one. Jesus challenged those grumblers with a question, and in effect he said, you find yourself unable to accept my claims that I came down from heaven and that you must eat my flesh and you must drink my blood. So what will you think when I tell you that I'll send back up to heaven? Or to put it another way, if this teaching is impossible for you to accept, you really have no capacity to understand what I'm teaching you on anything else that I want to teach you. Now, Jesus reiterated in verse 65 in our passage today with an earlier statement from verse 44 where he said, No one can come to the Father 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up in that last day. What God has to teach us is so utterly contrary to our human desires, that selfish sensibilities, that no one can understand his divine teaching without divine help. Unfortunately, the people interpreted his words of Jesus literally. They said, well, how can we eat his flesh or drink his blood? They missed that whole symbolism that he was saying that you must consume all of what I'm teaching you in order to understand that I am that Lamb of God who took, took away the sins of the world. Our divine help comes from God's Word. As we study it, we become and can understand His teachings more as we pray to Him and commune with Him. What is more, those people were so entangled in their sinful ignorance that no one can escape God unless they come to Him. Now, according to the other Gospels, Jesus made Capernaum his temporary home. If you remember on the map, Capernaum was up by the Sea of Galilee, and Capernaum was at the very top. And this is where the, the synagogue that Jesus taught in his day. He was a teacher, a rabbi in that synagogue. And this is where million, um, many multitudes sought him for healing and instruction. He performed many miracles in that area of Galilee. It was likely that teaching in Capernaum took place over a period of time. If you remember, and I bring this up almost every week, that John's gospel is a snapshot of Jesus' life. It's not necessarily in chronological order, but it's a picture album of different events that happened in Jesus' life to, to sew together that narrative that John was bringing forth in his gospel. And as a result of his teaching, many disciples, including the multitude that just the day before he had fed 10,000 people, 5,000 men plus women and children, those multitudes, much of those multitudes, decided that his teaching was too hard now. They were going to turn away, and this is why I named this a great desertion, because they turned away from Jesus' teaching because he wouldn't feed them again. But that did not include the 12. Jesus asked that question of them, but he already knew their answer. He challenged the 12 to reinforce his teaching of what true salvation really is. When the 12 were asked if they too would stop following him, Peter spoke up for the group, as he often did. He answered the question that revealed his motivation for staying. And if you'll look at your bulletin insert, the graphic there on the side with the pictures, I wrote that verse down here, put that verse here in that graphic. Lord, to whom shall we go? And the polite answer is, you have the words to eternal life. Now, Peter's straightforward response distinguishes him from those non-believing disciples that decided to turn away, those defectors. Whereas the multitude thought they understood Jesus, but then rejected him, Peter and the twelve believed in Jesus while admitting that they did not completely understand his teachings yet. They had many questions that just did not make sense to them, but they still believed Jesus in his teaching. Because Peter made the qualifications of his teaching, you have the words of eternal life. 
and was actually parroting what Jesus said in verse 63, the words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. The nature of salvation and belief is not merely an intellectual problem. If it was just an intellectual problem, we could reason that what Jesus was saying is true. But it becomes a volitional problem. It's a choice. We hear what Jesus is saying. Do we choose to believe it or do we choose to reject it? Remember a couple weeks ago where I had the diagram. Do we choose to accept or reject the deity of Jesus Christ? The spokesman for the multitude asked this question of Jesus just only 12 hours after their bellies were stuffed full. And on the other hand, the 12 disciples believed eventually they began to see the truth of God's word. As we look at, move on to 70 and 71, Jesus used this inter interchange to highlight another important truth. From Peter's perspective, the 12 chose to believe and then follow Christ. Jesus didn't reject Peter's claim. He just merely added to it. He said, I chose the 12 of you. However, not everything was as it was appeared. Jesus then said, but one is a devil. To make sure that we understand what Jesus meant, the Apostle Paul left nothing to our imaginations. Because he wrote verse 71, in fact, he wrote the entire gospel decades after it actually occurred. So he's filling in some notes here for us to understand better. When he wrote verse 71, he was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, one of the twelve who would later betray him. Now, at least in this case, choosing of Christ did not refer to salvation. It was more that original call in Matthew chapter 419, and Jesus called out to them, come and follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. Because not all who are called and who appear to believe have been chosen in the sense of salvation where we put our trust in Christ. Matthew 22, 14 says, for many are called, but few are chosen. And you say, well, that doesn't sound right. But God calls all humanity to accept Jesus Christ. But not everyone chooses to believe him. In that most famous verse of the scripture, John 3, 16, for this is God, how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And that's what I refer to as believing loyalty. We not only believe, but then we choose to follow Jesus Christ and his precepts. That is that we must believe, and as part of that belief is a commitment to remain loyal to following Jesus Christ. Now, most people admit to wanting a savior. I think you ask anybody if they feel like they need somebody to save them from something. And that savior all depends on what their desire is a type of hope, a type of escape. People who are struggling with loneliness desire a companion. People suffering with an identity crisis desire somebody to give them meaning. The hungry want a provider like this multitude did. The oppressed, they want a champion. The discontented want a revolutionary. The hopeless want somebody to inspire them. And the proud, well, they don't need anybody because they feel they can do it themselves. 
The multitude in the wilderness thought they needed a savior to bring them the land into the land flowing with milk and honey and somebody to fill their bellies and then to rout their enemies so they wouldn't be under the oppression of the Roman rule. One day, Jesus will be that kind of savior for us. The Old Testament promises of physical abundance and a kingdom ruled by the Messiah, and it will be fulfilled. Not only Israel, but all of the global Eden, where Christ restores his kingdom to earth as Eden was meant to be in the very beginning, we will have our golden age. But not until the Savior has finished meeting that most crucial need of all, and that is the need of salvation over the crisis of sin. Yet only those who choose to recognize their need will seek the Son of God. Now on the bottom picture on, the, on your bulletin insert, I give just a diagram here, a picture representing it, that sin separates us from God. It creates a gap between that barren land and paradise. And the only way across to paradise is that narrow cross. So what's the application of today's message? This passage that we're looking at both last week and this week, verses 22 through 71, on the back side of your bulletin insert, I have three responses to the call of truth. First, the word gospel itself comes from an old English word, Godspell. And that word God, that little g-god, means good, and spell means story. The gospel is indeed a good story. However, that goodness has that sharp edge. It's like eating that dried out bagel. You really need to desire now, a dried-out bagel to somebody who eats on a regular basis may not be appetizing, but what if you were starving? What if you had had nothing to eat for days? Then that dried-out bagel becomes something that's a bit more attractive to us because it will provide us nourishment in our greatest hour of need. And that is what Christ is saying here. Maybe my message is hard for you to understand is because you don't desire it enough. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And look at that picture in your bulletin insert, that bottom picture again as I read. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and the gate is wide for many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. And Jesus makes us clear, as we'll see in a few weeks when we cover John chapter 14, verse 6, where he says, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And Jesus did not soften this message for this multitude who was more interested in getting their bellies filled again on that next day than they were on really understanding what Jesus was trying to teach them. The audience took great care to remove the blood from their sacrifices before consuming it. And now Jesus was saying to them in verse 53, so Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, and let you, unless you eat my flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. And they were focused on that physical representation where Jesus was symbolically saying, you must believe everything I teach you and accept it. But that's not what they wanted. They wanted that easy way 
to be filled. It would seem that Jesus deliberately at times, as he spoke to those, especially the religious leaders who had a beef against him anyway, rather than something easy, something that today's seeker-friendly crowd might enjoy, the approach of that good story sometimes was difficult to comprehend if you were seeking what Christ was not delivering. Now, the purpose of the gospel message is not to convince distractors, not to turn the hearts of rebels. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. Instead, the gospel message means that by the means of those whose hearts have been prepared already, respond to the Creator. The good news of the call of God, believing loyalty, is the response of those who will call him their own. This truth is illustrated well in the feeding of the multitude. Jesus proclaimed the gospel, presenting himself as that sole meaning of salvation. But we, receive, we, we see the response of the audience. And this is those three-part response that's in your bulletin. Three responses to the call of truth. The first one is open defection in verse 66. Now, Paul and I have seen a phenomenon over the, several times over the years as we work in our business and in church. We would try to live rightly in our lives and share that good news story opportunity openly when we hadn't had the opportunity. And we'd witness to certain individuals who first seemed to be receptive in their hearts as if their hearts were starting to be softened somewhat. Then after time, seemingly all of a sudden that door went closed for them. They would shut us out. And we couldn't progress any further in our, as we attempted to explain that good story. And at this point in these cases, that person almost became, persons almost became hostile toward the message and any further progress in that good news story of accepting it. And we struggled to understand at that point, but we respectfully honored their decision and that open defection, defection, and then we had to leave it to the Holy Spirit to continue his work. Because as citizens of God's kingdom, we have to remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. It is not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What is important is that God makes that seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters works together with that same purpose. And both will be rewarded for their hard work. For we are both God's workers. And you are God's field. You are God's building. It's not up to us to save anyone. It's up to us to only to plant and to water. To be living a life that presents that good news. The second response to the call of truth is a firm determination in verses 67 through 69. While Peter often is the most criticized of all the disciples, his response to this hard teaching illustrated his genuine belief. He didn't pretend to understand everything that Jesus taught, yet he tenaciously held on to the master, saying, I don't fully believe. Peter said, in effect, even if we can't understand fully, I will believe anyway. He got the order right. He believed first and then the understanding came later. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
Belief like this is supernatural. It will persevere until the end of the day. So don't wait for every question to be answered. Don't delay in trusting Christ just because you can't resolve every theological conundrum. God has called you to believing loyalty by responding in faith. And in time, he will unravel the mysteries. As you spend time in his word and as you spend time in prayer, he will begin to unravel the mysteries that you might question and you don't fully understand. None of us will fully understand until that day we stand in his presence and all will be made known. All will be made clear for us. The third response to the call of truth is a subtle deception. The third response somewhat unnerves me because Judas illustrates, illustrated this type of response. He numbered himself among the faithful. He said and did everything necessary to appear genuine and even risked his life with the other disciples when they were in danger. Yet Judas apparently never fully believed. He might have fooled others and perhaps maybe even fooled himself saying, well, I'm doing good enough. We know in the Gospels, other places where it says that Judas often took from the treasury and was a thief out of the treasury of the disciples. But these were written after the fact. Did the disciples at the time really understand what was going on? Probably not. His subtle, was de his subtle deception eventually, eventually resulted in tragedy. He betrayed that Lord who he followed for three years for 30 pieces of silver. And he was so distraught over that decision to do so that he went out and hanged himself. Not everyone who believes or pretends to believe is a Judas, but unfortunately many well-meaning churchgoers sometimes behave like they are part of the family. And we can't question an individual's motives. I would never, never question somebody's motives. But it has to be authentic faith. Sadly, there will be those that will stand before the Savior one day and hear the rebuke that Jesus mentioned in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, when he says, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, only those who actually do the will of the Father will enter. And on Judgment Day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Now they expected a reward for their good service. But we are saved by grace. Not by works, as we're told in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It is a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast. But God's grace is amazing. His love for us is amazing. And that's the type of love that we should have for one another. That's the type of love that we should have for those that may not know Jesus Christ yet. That's the type of love for, that we should have for those who are opposed to us in any form or fashion, whether at work or play or at church or in the political realm. All too often, we want to prove ourselves right instead of just reaching out and loving them. 
And that we as believers need to reach out and show our love for one another. It says, All, everyone will know you are my disciples because of your love for one another. And seeing how Jesus presented the gospel and how each individual responded according to the leanings of their heart. And it gives me great comfort when I share the gospel knowing that it's not up to me. And I used to worry at times in the past, a long time, quite a while ago, that if my presentation wasn't clear and compelling, maybe a soul would be lost because of a failure on my part. Then I came to understand that it's not up to me. What an unbelievable pressure we put on ourselves if we think that way. Because as the citizens of God's kingdom, we are charged with the responsibility to live a life according to God's word. Another person's soul is not yours or mine to win or lose. And it's up to Jesus Christ through God, Jesus Christ at sacrifice. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 explains our responsibility. Instead, we must worship Christ as the Lord of, of your life. And if someone asks you for the hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. We should be ready. We should live lives that are pleasing to God. But God will give the increase. When God provides an opportunity to share that good story, the best that we can, an individual response is a private matter between God and that person. And only the two of them will know whether it's true or whether it's a pretense. And that's the passage today where those who wanted another filling of their bellies said, show us another sign that we might believe. We just showed them the day before and they're still questioning it. Jesus says, you must believe my teaching and believe. Believe first. Understanding will come within time. And next Sunday, we're going to look at another snapshot taken from John's gospel, a, a picture out of his picture album of that good story. And we'll see Jesus starting to squirmish with the religious leaders and how those skirmishes were becoming more and more often. They were proliferating. And as te Jesus teaches in the festival or in the temple during the festivals of tabernacles or shelters, the situation really starts to heat up. It starts to become to a boiling point where after two years probably at this point, maybe more, closer to the end of Christ's ministry, we see those Pharisees and Sadducees just boiling up because they can't stand that Jesus is popularity. They can't stand that their people are following him instead of them. And he does it because Jesus speaks the truth during those festivals in next week's message. Because of this, I'm naming next week or titling next week's message, Jesus in the lion's den, because he was thrown in that pit of lions who were trying to, at that point, actively kill him. So please read John chapter 7, verses 1 through 52 in preparation for next week's message. I know it's a lot of verses, but they're so interweaved, I'm going to try to cover all the verses next week in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 52 about Jesus in the lion's den. So let us pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for this opportunity just to humbly present your word. May it 
be the words from you that each of us here, Father, may it impact our lives, may it impact our lives so that we'll be prepared whenever we have the opportunity to tell others of your love, this good story that you've granted to us, Father, that we might present this good story to others. Thank you for your guidance each day, for the daily provisions you give us, for the feeding on your word that we might have eternal life, that we might put our trust in you. We may not understand everything in your word, Father, but we know that your word is true, and we thank you for this. We thank you for your blessings of each day. Pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously. Lead with integrity and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.